Amen. You may be seated. At this time, uh, the kids can be dismissed. Sprouts, uh, ages two through kindergarten, can go with our Sprout workers. Let's give our Sprout workers a round of applause as they minister to our children. And uh, let's turn this morning to Mark chapter 10 in your Bibles. Mark chapter 10 is where we are camping out for two weeks. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17 through 20. If you are new to the Bible and if you have a copy, you can go to your table of contents and you can find Mark. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the four uh, accounts of Jesus' life. Everything we know about Jesus' life are in these four Gospels, and we are looking at Mark chapter 10 today. Follow along with me as I read these verses, verses 17 through 21. As he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you uh, speak to us this morning. This is a difficult passage for us because uh, there, there is nobody in this room that would love to hear uh, this response, sell everything that you have and give it away. Um, yet that's what Jesus told this man to do. I think uh, the, the convicting part is that many of us, at least in this moment right now, feel like we would have the same response, that we would in sorrow walk away from Jesus. God, convict us, uh, this morning as we study, bring down our love of money, and let us cherish Christ. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a Brazilian man who this morning knows full well that money doesn't last forever. His name is Ike Batista. You may have heard about him in the news he was worth $30 billion. Everybody say billion. billion. Say it like a rich man. Billion. $30 billion. And he is now bankrupt. He was sort of the king of an oil empire that turned out to have no oil. That is a problem. As his own wealth was beginning to soar, Celebrities and famous people started investing in this man and in his oil empire, with no oil, I might add. $30 billion he was worth. 
just a year ago, he was uh, Forbes magazine, top, one of Forbes magazine's top 10 richest people in the, word, in the world. Now, I have lost, you know, I think I lost $83 once in, um, while it was stolen, had $83 in cash. And, you know, we, we, we lose some money here and there. Maybe you've lost a few thousand, I don't know. But $30 billion in a year? You, like a year ago, 30 billion. Oh, shoot, we don't have any oil. And now he is filing for the largest bankruptcy case in South American history. Not too long ago, he was actually on 60 Minutes, and he said that he fully intended on becoming, or he intends to become, the wealthiest man in the world. And now... A parable of biblical proportion. A man who, whose goal was to become the wealthiest man in the world has in one year gone from $30 billion to bankruptcy. The butt of jokes. Most recently, uh, people will say things like, next time Pope Francis visits Brazil to visit the poor, they'll visit Ike Batista who was once a year ago one of the richest men in the world. Now, what kind of, what kind of goal is it in life to say, I, my goal for life, I intend on being the richest man in the world? Why? For what purpose? The story that we're in, in this morning, the text we're looking at, features an encounter with another rich man who is worth a lot. However, this rich man did not, uh, un, or did, did not uh, unintentionally lose all of his wealth. In contrary to that, he actually was commanded by Jesus Christ himself to get rid of all of his wealth and sell it to the poor. As uh, the story goes, it starts with, uh, in verse 17, the, the man asks a pretty good question. He says, good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, this man evidently is concerned about his own life today as he's been able to stack up some wealth, but he's also concerned about the next life. And rightly so. He evidently believes in a heaven and in a hell. He believes that there's a road to heaven and a road to hell, and he says, comes to Jesus, comes to the right person, by the way, and he says, hey, tell me, how do I make sure I'm on the road to heaven? How do I make sure I'm going to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, hey, why do you call me good? And uh, as if to say, like, sort of hint at his own divinity, only God is good. And then Jesus says, you know the, you know the commandments, and he gives him the commandments. The man's response is, I, I've done all these things since I was a youth. Give me something else. And Jesus says, okay, I'll give you something else. The one thing you haven't done. Uh, look at these poor around here. Sell all that you have and, and give it to them. And then come and follow me. The man goes away sorrowful. Let's be honest. If any one of us were standing there as one of Jesus' disciples, in this moment, we would have said, what? Are you kidding me? Like, you're going to require that of this man to sell everything? And, like, why don't you just tell him to tithe? 
Like, we could use this guy. Like, don't let him walk away. Go after Like, Jesus, you realize that he actually believed you. You realize that you've actually hurt his heart and he's walking away sorrowful. Go after him. Tell him you were just joking. Like, you can't be serious. This Jesus would not have been invited to speak at most conferences. He would have, like, you know, I, I can only imagine speaking at a Christian conference. Everybody comes, hey, if you want to follow me, everybody here, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And he walks out the door. Like, not the most seeker sensitive move in the book, but it's what he required of this man. That is the question that we're facing this morning. Why did Jesus require this man to sell everything that he had and give it to the poor? Now, before we actually get into the answer of that question, there are three things that we know right off the bat. Number one, this is not simply because Jesus loved the poor. Now, Jesus did love the poor. His teachings are thick with instructions on loving the poor and, and helping the poor and serving those in need and good news to the poor. However, his intent here isn't just simply to create a do-gooder who's going to help the poor and make the poor rich. Why? How do we know that? Well, first of all, this man himself in doing so would become what? Poor. All right? So he's telling somebody, become broke, all right? So first of all, Jesus, while he had a heart for the poor, did not come to make all the poor rich. Here's an instance in which he's saying, rich man, I want you to actually become poor and let other people become rich. Secondly, we know that because Jesus himself was poor. He had no place to lay his head. So why did Jesus command that he gives everything up and give it to the poor? The second thing that we know is this. There were wealthy people that followed Jesus. So he didn't require this of all wealthy people. Uh, For example, there were wealthy women who supported Jesus' ministry and followed along with him, probably bought him food when he was hungry. The third thing we know is this. Shortly after this instance, there's another rich man that Jesus encounters named Zacchaeus. You know Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he? Climbed up into a sycamore tree? What did he require of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus repented of his sins and believed the gospel and turned to Christ. Zacchaeus did not give up everything that he had. He paid back those who he had stolen from times four, so like with a whole lot of interest. But it was a different requirement. Why? This man right here, in this moment, in this instance, why did he look at this man dead set in the eyes and say, all right, you want to inherit eternal life. Here's what you need to do. You want to be on the road to heaven. Here's what you need to do. Sell everything that you have. Give up all of your possessions. Cash out. Take the cash and give it to the poor. And then you can come and follow me. 
My aim this morning is to talk to those of you who are tempted by the God of money. To talk to those of you who are tempted to love and to cherish money. And to show you that Jesus is infinitely more valuable. Let me give you four reasons from the text why Jesus required this of this young rich man. The first reason is this, number one. The rich man wanted eternal life, but he valued temporary life. Look at verse 22. Verse uh, verse 22, it says he had, that last line, he had great possessions. Now compare that with verse 21. Jesus is telling him here, you can, in getting rid of your great possessions, store up for yourselves, yourself, treasures in heaven. So Jesus here is telling this man, look, treasure in heaven, infinitely more valuable than treasures on earth, give up the temporary and gain the eternal. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus puts it like this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth destroys, thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth does not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is saying this, You will receive eternal life. You will receive that which is truly beautiful, treasures that have no end to them. You will receive solid joy, a fulfillment, a oneness, a happiness that is merely shadowed in this life. Now, what like driven businessman would would not want that, right? I mean, it's clear in this passage that this man wants eternal life. He wants to have treasures in heaven, like every good businessman would. If he's going to be concerned about this life, he's also going to be concerned about the next. But what did he value? It's one thing to want eternal life, but what did he value? What he valued was not the eternal. He valued the temporal. Let me explain how this works out. On Facebook, a uh, pastor that I know in the city recently posted this status. If your life partner, meaning your spouse, if your life partner doesn't believe in you, it's time to get a new life partner. Live your best life now. I was blown away when I read that. Like I had to read it three or four times to make sure I wasn't misunderstanding what he was saying. Because this is what it sounds like to me. Okay, so God sort of designed marriage to be like this lifelong thing, this lifelong commitment. And if they don't believe in me, like if my wife doesn't believe in me, forget the decree of the eternal God and live my best life now. If your spouse doesn't believe in you, then, then, then find a new one. Because They're keeping you back from living your best life now. And I wrote on his status, I was like, dude, if I I lived this out, like my wife and I would have left each other long ago because we, we often don't believe in the other person. My wife wants to start a new business adventure every three months. (laughs) And I believe in her, I, I swear it. 
But if I don't, don't leave me over it. You see what I'm saying? Listen, your best life now? What this pastor was saying on Facebook is don't worry about the eternal decree. Don't worry about God's design. Don't worry about what He wants. Forget eternity. Live for the temporary. If this rich young man here in Mark chapter 10 had to choose between his best life now or his best life later, he would have chosen his best life now. And friends, that's what he's choosing. Jesus is holding two options. Have your best life now or have your best life later. And he says, I will walk away in sorrow taking my best life now and I will willingly choose the road to hell. The second reason that Jesus told this man in particular to give up everything that he had was this. The rich man is focused on his own self-righteousness. Let me show this to you. Look at verse 18. or the, the quote right before verse 18. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, why is Jesus so abrupt there? Like, yo, chill out, dude. I was just, it's just an adjective I was throwing in. Why do you call me good? Look, Jesus is he's pointing something out here that's, that needs to be heard. The problem with this man is he believes that people are good. He believes in general. He's not coming to Jesus saying good teacher as, as a quote of Jesus' divinity, which is what Jesus wants to throw at him. He's like, look, only God is good. All right? So, like, don't call me good until you're ready to call me God. All right? That's essentially what he's saying here. But the problem is, there are, there are none good. No, not one, but God. Only God is good, and this man believes that people are generally good. He believes that he himself is generally good. How do we know that? Well, let's go on. Look at what he says. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Look at the man's response in verse, 21, uh, verse 20. He says, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. He's like, look, I know the law, all right? I know the commandments, and I've been doing that ever since I was a boy. Now, we who know the, the broadness and the depth and the width of Jesus' teaching on, on the law know how foolish of a statement that actually is. Because Jesus says it's not the actions that God cares about, it's your heart that God cares about. In the Sermon on the Mount, he makes this uber clear when he says, look, you've, you've heard it said don't murder, but I say, look, hate is the same thing as murder. So if you hate your brother, if you wish that your brother never existed, then you are a murderer. Who then is not guilty of murder, Jesus is saying. How about stealing or committing adultery? If you, if you lust, Jesus says, you've committed adultery. Who then is not guilty of committing adultery? Stealing, if you, if you are dishonest, you steal a thought and claim it to be your own. You are a thief. Who is not guilty then of breaking the law? Defrauding, lying, have you never lied? You've never lied. Dishonoring your father and mother, you've never been wrongfully angry with your father and mother, even as a child. You see, the man's foolishness is that he actually believes that... <laughs> He believes what he's saying. All of these things I've kept from my youth, I need something more. Give me something else, the man is saying. What's the problem here? 
His problem is this. When you focus on money, when you focus on wealth, it leads you to an external focus, period. Meaning you're focusing on temporal things and you're focusing on external things. So then, by all human standards, this man was actually a pretty good guy. Like, he's a good guy. He never cheated on his wife, never killed anybody. He's an honest man, shows up on time, follows through with his word. He's a good guy. But friends, God doesn't look at our actions. He looks at our hearts. And what this man finds himself on is an endless pursuit of self-righteousness. Even though he truly believes he has done all of these things, he doesn't believe he's on his way to heaven. He says, I need something more. I need something more. I've done all of these things. I've been doing these things, and I still don't feel right. I still feel guilty. Pursuing self-righteousness is an endless rat race of trying to do enough good to get rid of the guilt. I was serving in the neighborhood with a woman who's part of a, part of a local church. And um, we served together. It was a cleanup project. And then after we were finished, we were leaving. And she said, and I quote, that was my, this has been my good deed for the day. Another reason that God might let me into heaven. And I didn't know what to say. But I said this. I, I did say, I'm just glad that God will let me into heaven because of grace. What I realized was that her and I, we were doing two separate things. I was just out cleaning because somebody asked me to be part of it. I was out cleaning because there was trash to be picked up. I was out cleaning because I'm a Christian and I think it's what a faithful Christian should try to do is to serve their community. She was trying to earn her way to heaven. She was doing a good deed in hopes that maybe just one more thing, one more act of self-righteousness might earn her way into heaven. And friends, it broke my heart. What a, what, what a terrible rat race to be on. An endless pursuit of good, an endless pursuit of trying to earn my favor or, or earn God's favor. This man, he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, I've been doing good all of my life, but I know, I know that I'm, my, my, my heart isn't good. I know that there's something wrong. Give me something else to do. Give me something else so I can be right. You see, guys, what Jesus offered, could have offered him is something that he didn't even realize he needed. He's coming face to face with Jesus, asking for something else, and so Jesus now is crushing him with the law. It very well could have shown him his need for forgiveness, and that's what Jesus could have offered him. 
forgiveness. That's what my friend needed who was cleaning up with me that day in the community. Not another good action, not something else on the to-do list. She needed forgiveness. This leads us to the third reason that Jesus required that this man give up everything and give it to the poor. And it, it is this. The man came to Jesus for the wrong reason. So, for instance, he goes to his investors to get capital for his project. He goes to his clients to sell and to collect. And he comes to Jesus to make sure that his investments are flowing over into the afterlife. Why do you come to Jesus this morning? Why do you come to Jesus? Jesus required this of this man because he came to Jesus for all the wrong reason. Francis Chan, in his book, Crazy Love, he asks a very good question. He says this, if you were to die and go to heaven, and you got there, and you had your friends there, and you had a mansion there, and you looked around, and Jesus wasn't there, would it be heaven for you? The way you answer that question says a lot about your soul. This man did not come to Jesus for Jesus. He came to him to get more riches, to get more stuff, to get a better afterlife. I want you to see the irony that we see in this passage. This man here is coming face to face with the center of heaven. So in Revelation chapter 5, in the end of the Bible, it says that there is going to be this lamb who was slain that walks into the middle of the crowd, and the crowd represents like everybody that's there. And as the lamb walks into the middle of the crowd, the, the whole crowd just abrupts or, or, or erupts in worship, singing, holy, holy, holy is the lamb that was slain. He is worthy to receive power and glory and wisdom and strength forever and ever and ever, and they all fall down on their faces in worship of Him. This man right now is coming face to face with the very center of heaven, the focal point of heaven. He's coming face to face with eternal life Himself. Face to face with the light of the world. Face to face with the gem of heaven. Face to face with the center. But that isn't really what he wants. There's a story in the Bible of a rich man, or I'm sorry, of a servant, not a rich man, of a servant who's probably working in the field of a rich man. And he's digging and he finds in the ground a buried treasure. Now, what does he do? He can't steal it because that would be wrong and he probably would get caught. What does he do? He, he goes home and he sells everything that he has. His wife probably thought he was crazy. Puts the house on the market and sells it. Sells the, the broken down car. Sells his kids. Just kidding. Sells every non-living thing that he has. Maybe he sold the dog. I don't know. He sells everything that he has, and then he takes the money and does what with it? He buys the field. 
which again in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of his wife, probably was like, you are crazy. Like, what is that field going to do for us? All right, I get it. It's a big field. Nice. But we need a house. We need a car. We need a dog. You bought a field. And then he says, ah, look what I found in the field. And he walks over now in the field that he owns and he pulls out the buried treasure. You see, when you find that which is most valuable, everything else fades. When you find that which is most important and some, a, a, a treasure truly to be had, then all of the other things that you previously had been living for, that car and the house and your stuff and your bank account, it all just like kind of fades to the background and it doesn't matter anymore. This man has come face to face with eternal life. He's come face to face with the gem of heaven. He's come face to face with the treasure. It only makes sense now that everything else would fade to the background, right? It only makes sense then that he would say, yes, I'll get rid of everything. I will drop everything so I can have that which is most valuable. But he came to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Why do you come to Jesus? Do you come to Jesus to get wealth this side of eternity? Do you come to Jesus to get health, to get better? Do you come to Jesus for a powerful experience because you're bored with life? Do do, do you come to Jesus because uh, you want to live a more fulfilling life? Because you, you want to feel like you're doing something in this world, in, in this life. Why do you come to Jesus? Or do you come to Jesus because Jesus is the Lamb who was slain? And He's worthy of your worship. Jesus required that this man get rid of all that he had because he came to Jesus for the wrong reason. Lastly, the fourth reason that Jesus told this man to get rid of everything is this. Simply this. Money was his God. You see his response there in verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why did this man walk away sorrowful? It's because Jesus didn't just tell him to give. Jesus attacked his God. Now how does money become our God? It's actually quite simple. Money is what we use to go to save a lot and buy food. (laughs) Money is what what we use to pay our rent at the end of this month or the first of the next or your mortgage. Money is what you use to buy clothes. Money is what you use to buy some luxuries, to give you a little extra comfort in life. You see, what we really value, what, is, what really sort of becomes sort of God at the very core is actually our own, our own life our own existence, our own sustainability, our own 
survival, our own comforts. So essentially, we are afraid of death. And money is what we use to prolong our existence in this world. And it's also what we use to give us comfort while we prolong, prolong our existence in this world. So therefore then, we believe that money provides for us and money then is elevated to a godlike status. Are you guys tracking with me here? If we then believe that money provides for us, like how is it that I'm still alive today It has nothing to do with God's sovereignty. It has nothing to do with God's favor. It has nothing to do with Him sustaining my life, giving me a job that could provide for my needs, or giving me a gift of money from a friend, or giving me some food. It has nothing to do with anything about God. It all has to do with money. I believe that my life will be sustained and will be comforted by money. When we begin to think that way, money has then become a God for us. This man was required to give up all that he had, not just as one more good action, not just as another like tick on the the box just just to fill out this list of things so he can earn favor with God and seek self-righteousness. This man is commanded by Jesus to give up all that he has and sell it to the poor because what this man needs to do in order to receive eternal life is renounce his God. And that is what he's not willing to do. And so then, this man walks away with great sorrow. He walks away with sorrow because Jesus attacked his God. He walks away with sorrow because he loves his money more than he loves Jesus. And because he loves his money more than he loves Jesus, he has chosen the road to hell. And for that reason, he walks away with sorrow. Guys, what can we learn from this story for our lives today. Let me give you three lessons. Number one, cherishing Jesus is the answer to false worship of money. Let me say that again. Let me rephrase it. How, how do we fight the God of money? How do we fight idolizing cash, making the temporal more important than the eternal We do that through cherishing Jesus. Now let me give you a picture of what I mean by that. Imagine you're standing in a, in a big room. And imagine there's a lot of people in this room just crowding the room out, all right? And then somebody comes along and they tell you, look, the, 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 the floor of this room is about to drop. It's about to just simply disappear. And we are all falling 5,000 feet. Here, hang on to this rope. And he hands you a rope. And so now you're hanging on to the rope. And you, you, you believe it. The, the floor is about to drop. I'm hanging on to this rope. Now people kind of start messing with you a little bit. Like, what are you hanging on to the rope for, you fool? Come over here and like hang out. 
over in the, this little dark corner of the room where we used to hang out. I'm, I'm just kind of taking it as far as I can take it here. But now all you think really care about is the rope. Let's say somebody comes along and they grab a dollar out of your wallet and they run, they steal from you. Are you going to chase after them? You're like, keep the freaking dollar, dude. I'm hanging onto this rope. And then guess what? The floor drops. And everybody around you drops five thousand feet to their death and you are now hanging suspended by this rope now in this moment do you just simply admire the rope in this moment do you you just kind of look and you're like man this is such a nice rope like i i don't know who sort of put this rope together i just i think i like the color of it to be honest i'm a i've always been a fan of light brown it's just a nice rope like, do you just, do you admire the rope? Or, in this moment, do you cherish the rope? Do you love the rope? Do you kiss the rope? Because this rope is your life. Now, assume, or imagine, that coins start falling out of your pockets. Dollar bills. That hundred dollar bill that you had, had in it falls out of your pocket. Your wallet and your credit card, they fall out of your pocket. Now, do you chase after this money? Do you care that there are coins dropping out of your pocket? That a hundred dollar bill fell out of your pocket? You don't care anymore. Why? Because you have life. What you thought sustained you the stuff that you used to look for to, to, to give you survival has now proven to be nothing. And it has dropped with everyone else. And you cherish the rope. Cherishing Jesus is the answer to fighting the idolatry of money. You see, friends, when we cherish Jesus, money just simply becomes money. It's there. It's helpful. It's useful. It's a gift from God. But it is not hope. Second lesson from this. Give as an act of telling our money who your God is. So generosity is a twofold act. Number one, You're looking at your soul, and you're saying, soul, money is not our God. Money is not where we are placing our hope, and we're giving it away. The second act of generosity is looking at your money and saying, money, you are not my God. Now, how is this fighting against the idolatry of money? Do you give your God away? Like, does anybody give their God away? The answer is a resounding no. You don't give away that which you worship. You keep it. You worship it. So, the very act of generosity is the number one way to tell your soul and your money who your God is, and to tell your money that you are not my God, let me prove it to you 
and you give it away. The third lesson we receive from this is, is that we ought to then give as an act of promoting the worship of God. There are millions of people around this world who are dying without Christ. There are millions of people around this world who are on the road to hell. There are entire cities and countries around this world that have no hope. Friends, there are thousands in this city that we live in who are on the road to hell. There are thousands in the city that we live in who have no hope beyond this life. The question I ask you is this, do we love them? Last spring, there was a, uh, a, a, an acquaintance of mine who was murdered not too far from here. And after he was shot, I went to the hospital and stood there at his bedside as his head was just swollen, his eyes closed, bullet holes in his skull, just hours left to live. His friends there, his, his parents, brother, little brother and sister in the waiting room, his four-year-old daughter asking if she can come back and see him, doesn't understand why she can't go see dad. And I thought to myself, I've only shared the gospel with this guy one time. I shared the gospel with him one time, and I, haven't I never pursued him after that. And here he goes, down that road. Friends, he has a brother who's on the chopping block. It's, it's this over a year of back and forth um, warfare practically, uh, trying, trying to get his brother and him. His brother right now is in safety because he's in jail, which isn't that safe, but evidently in this situation it is. He's in jail right now. <clears throat> Just a couple weeks ago, I was pleading with his mother to talk to him and ask him if he would let me come and visit him in jail. My heart is broken for this young guy. He's Muslim, he's part of the Nation of Islam, and so Lord knows that he does not want a white pastor coming to visit him in jail. But I said, look, just, just ask him if, if I could come. We don't know how much time he has left, and we don't know how much time anybody has left. Is, is, is that worth giving our lives to? Is it worth giving our money to? John Piper has famously said that missions exist because worship doesn't. What he means is this. The problem is, the problem is that people don't look at Jesus and cherish Jesus and hang on to Jesus for all that they have. 
They don't look at Jesus and worship him as the the lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of their sins. The one who will be worshipped forever and ever at the center of heaven. And because people don't worship Jesus, then missions exist. And so it's then a worthy cause then to give of our resources to fund missionaries and pastors to go overseas into hard places and to preach the gospel and to plant churches so that people will see the rope and that they will grab the rope and they will cherish the rope and they will worship Christ. It's worth it. It's worth it to, to, to fund the, the ministry of the gospel here in Baltimore through our own church as we then go to take this, you know, why, why is it that we, that we like bring these interns on and bring them in and they give an opportunity to, to grow in the faith and we give out books and we rent this place out and we do this thing? Why is that? It's so that worship may increase. It's so that those who were on the path to hell may see that Jesus is a worthy rope. That He is their only hope and their only life and that they may grab on to Him. Why is it that we then give of our own resources to fund missions around the world? Friends, we give so that we can tell our money you are not God, but then also we give so that we may fund the mission of God in this world. My wife and I recently were looking at our own budget. And we realized that because of some gifts that we have received over the last year, that we can increase uh, what we've been giving. Friends, what a gift it is to be able to just simply, to, to, to live simply in this world so that we can give more away. I want you to imagine with me as we close, imagine if this rich young man here in Mark chapter 10 would have repented. Imagine if... Uh, as Jesus places this command on him, he would have, it would have brought him to his knees and he would have said, I, that's too much. I don't know what to do. Like, I, I need help. I need forgiveness. I need grace. My heart's not there. Imagine if that would have been his response to fall on his knees before Christ begging for forgiveness. What would he have found? What he would have found is this. He would have found Jesus to be simply enough. He would have then walked away with Jesus, followed Jesus with nothing in this world, leaving everything behind, but he would have had true happiness. He would have had solid joy. But this man chose to keep everything that he had in this world. And he walked away. He walked away with with the world. 
He walked away with everything in the world. Great riches, great possessions. Yet with sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you seal these truths in our hearts that we uh, do not allow money to become our God, that we uh, do not allow the lie of the world to uh, convince us that it is indeed money that provides for our needs, not you, and that we see Jesus and that we cherish Jesus and that he becomes our everything and that everything that we had becomes nothing. And God, then lead us to be generous people so that we may reinforce this truth in our own soul that money is not our God, so that we may tell our money who our God is, and so that we may see souls saved. God, use our resources, use our money to fund the, the, the ministry of the gospel in Baltimore and around this world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said,